all over. It's another golden moment for the boys in gold. Nasrul Ashi wins in the playoffs. Orlando are going home. Full time. Nashville 3. Orlando 1. That was, of course, the final call of Nashville SC's playoff victory, their third in club history, 3-1 over Orlando City. If you're listening today, you know the score. You know what happened. We can't wait to go deeper and break it all down for you on the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage from two people who've covered every Nashville SC playoff match as well as virtually every Nashville SC match. And in your (laughs) case literally every Nashville SC match. I'm Wes Bowling. <laughs> I am a, an analyst for Nashville SC Radio. was in the studio last night for the call. Well, studio hosting for the call from the press box. Yeah, and I'm Tim Sullivan. I am the owner, operator, proprietor, editor, uh, exclusive writer pretty much for clubcountryusa.com. Tony Husband's brilliant match-winning call courtesy of ESPN 94.9. Thanks to Moon Taxi for the music. Setting the tone and Nashville setting the tone for a potential run to MLS Cup. They are now three wins away as they beat Orlando City. Tim, it was cast as, by some, and by some I mean by myself, (laughs) as maybe the toughest possible first-round matchup for this club. Orlando goes up 1-0, and not that that necessarily is a sign of disaster. I mean, Nashville's conceded the first goal 16 times this year, but to come back against a very quality team that was very motivated, this to me is, is a historic moment, not just for what was accomplished, but for the team against whom Nashville accomplished it. Yeah. I mean, it was everything that a playoff game is supposed to be. It's a, a rivalry game. Both teams had stretches of dominating the other. There were a couple impressive strikes and, and one and one lucky one. And the brand name players showed up in the biggest moments. And, and of course, uh, from our, our perspective and from our listeners' perspective, the most important part is it was a Nashville win. As you are ranking top moments in club history, where does this rank for you? Are there others that that beat it? For me, this is this is about it for this club so far. Yeah, I think you have to look at last year's first playoff game because it was against a team that's even more got got that little rivalry angle because Miami came in at the same time as Nashville. It was an utterly dominating game, but at the same time, uh, the excitement of, of a game that's a little more competitive and against a team that's quite a bit more competitive makes the Orlando match feel all the better the next morning, even if it wasn't quite the the blowout that that Miami game was. Perhaps I was a bit hyperbolic last night, but I I tweeted that tonight is the night that soccer has officially arrived in Music City. And those of you who (laughs) listen to this show would say it arrived a long time ago, of course. But in terms of of finding its way into the broader local, you know, consciousness, Mm -hmm. I, I think you need an exciting playoff type of win in the typical moment where the bandwagon people come out of the woodwork and start supporting something because it's, it's more than just the tactics and the game. It's an, it's an entertainment thing. It's a city pride thing. You know, I think we both knew people who were at the game last night who maybe aren't Mm -hmm. terribly enthusiastic about going to play Montreal on a Wednesday night in August, but showed up in the cold just to check it out and, and now think a lot more highly of, of this club. I think for that reason, for the, the larger audience building narrative, uh, it, it was a, a special night uh, for a lot of folks and for this club. Daryl DK opened it with a 14th minute goal, his sixth against Nashville in six appearances against the boys in gold. Nashville going to be glad to see him get sold to Europe, perhaps this off season. Honey Mukhtar in MVP style equalizes in the 21st. 
takes the lead in the 74th. And then how about Yonder Cadiz, a stoppage time goal, his first goal, Tim, since the second match of the season. A lot of folks have been hard on Cadiz. We have been balanced on him. You know, we, we've given credit where credit is due, which is sometimes not always just on the score sheet. But certainly he has had some struggles and uh, redeemed himself in a big way to get an insurance tally. Yeah, and I think something that fans have kind of been frustrated with is he doesn't always get the easy one. Well, this wasn't an easy one. It was no. a nice little post-up goal, had to make a turn on a defender, and a solid clinical finish past Pedro Galese, and it's something that maybe you need to up the difficulty a little bit. It's kind of a, for for the two Michigan fans out there who listen to our podcast. It reminds me of Braylon Edwards, who would always <laughs> drop the easy pass but make these incredible leaping grabs. Surely there's a there's a, a number. Any college football fan has has a wide receiver like that who has played for their team, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe that's what Cotty's needed. A.J. Brown could even go into that category for you Titans fans. <laughs> Make some incredible plays, then leads the team and drops. Uh, anyway, less Titans, more Nashville SC, the historic win. We're going to break it all down in the early shout. Everything you need to know, including some awesome gold nuggets that put Nashville's achievement in context. And then we'll embrace consensus with an interesting question. If there were a revote today, would Hani Mukhtar pick up enough votes to beat out Carlos Heel for MVP? It's really intriguing to think about. Of course, the voting was submitted after the regular season, so uh, there is no no shot at revising those votes. The, the tally is sitting somewhere in the MLS offices ready for reveal one of these days. But it's an interesting question to explore nonetheless. We'll go outside in and take a look at the rest of the East and also out West where there was a crazy one on Tuesday night. Big upset, the only upset so far. And then in the mailbag, a key question about where Dave Romney was. He played 59 straight matches for the boys in gold. He's missed the last two. Will he be ready for Philadelphia? And then in the final whistle, content recommendations and a look at what is ahead in, in what's going to be a very interesting postseason as we've gone mostly chalk so far, which means some heavyweight matchups ahead. Let's get to it with the early shout. They've given it away for the restart, and it's Mukhtar running at them. His shot is deflected. It's gone in, and Hani Mukhtar has got Nashville level. Mukhtar sets up Sapong. Sapong, nice control. Back out to the right to Mukhtar. He's running at the penalty area. It's Hani Mukhtar for Nashville. Onto his left. He's still going. And he's put it in with a quite incredible virtuoso goal. How about that for an MVP? That, ladies and gentlemen, is Hani Mukhtar. And that is Nashville SC2. Orlando City 1. Mukhtar magic in the playoffs. That duo of Hani Mukhtar goals, courtesy of ESPN 94.9, as Hani tallies his fifth multi-goal game this season, sixth in Nashville colors. Tim, it didn't necessarily look like Hani was going to be the hero 15 minutes in. Orlando started on the front foot. Nashville didn't manage a shot until the 21st minute, but then they started to really take control of the match. From minutes 16 to 30, they had 70% of the ball, and you felt then that the boys and gold were going to put together a vintage 2021 performance, right? Whether mm -hmm. or not they were going to get the goals, they were going to be resilient enough to put themselves back in the contest. Yeah, and it was a situation where we've seen Nashville do this before, and you mentioned it. Nashville has conceded first 16 times, and um, you know they've only dropped four, four losses all year, and it's another one of those situations where not only did they manage to claw back, but they, they went well beyond that and scored a couple goals to, to make it a almost comfortable win. I know <laughs> when the insurance goal comes in stoppage time, that's maybe not the case, but this was a game where Nashville did what needed to be done to, to overcome early struggles. 
and to overcome a, a very aggressive Orlando attack. We told you in our preview episode that this is a team that likes to get into the final third, likes to overlap on the wings and try to overload you and then get the ball into the box and force those one-on-one matchups. I think Nashville's center backs did a brilliant job managing that. A very unofficial count of touches inside the 18. It's unofficial because Nashville's are easy to count, but Orlando's are not. They're all bunched together. <laughs> a little overlapped, yeah. Nashville had eight touches all night inside the penalty area. Orlando had, again, give or take two or three, 37. 37 touches inside the penalty area and, of course, just the one goal. And we will talk a lot on this show about Hani Mukhtar. He deserves it. We should. But Walker Zimmerman, Tim, absolutely deserves a lot of credit, too. Ten clearances, six interceptions. If not for a Defender of the Year caliber performance from him, Nashville could be sitting at home today. Yeah, and as you looked at the post-game stats, there were only a couple shot blocks, but it felt like Nashville SC was blocking shot after shot. The Mm -hmm. situation was just that they weren't even letting Orlando get to the point where they managed to even pull the trigger more often than not. And that is a huge credit to Walker Zimmerman, of course. Without Dave Romney, as you mentioned, we'll get to that in the mailbag. But without Dave Romney, Zimmerman is the guy in the middle. And last night, he was the guy in the middle, for sure. And credit to Jack Mayer, too. Mm-hmm. He, of course, committed the penalty on DK that led to a PK goal in the eventual uh, draw against Orlando at home uh, a few months ago. I thought he held his own as well. And for me, it wasn't beyond Walker. It wasn't a standout individual effort that really fueled this. It was those three center backs, along mm-hmm. with Eric Miller, who lined up at the right wing back, really working in conjunction with one another. Positioning was excellent. They were backing each other up, and they really didn't get into very many situations where they were exposed one-on-one against a guy like DK, who's going to take you down every time he's up against you one-on-one. Yeah, and we, we've talked to players about this. We've even talked to Gary Smith himself about this. And it's what makes Nashville SC so much more than the sum of its parts. Walker Zimmerman was obviously a great player with LAFC. Dax McCarty has obviously had a great career with Dallas, with um, New York Red Bulls, with Chicago Fire. But for whatever reason, when they've come together under Gary Smith, it's just been better than even those incredible individual accolades. And it is about the system. And, and more importantly than that, it's the belief in the system. These guys were consistently selling out to make sure Orlando wasn't able to even test Joe Willis. And he only had to make uh, you know, a few saves there because these guys were preventing Orlando from even putting shots on goal. And that system and the execution within that system has turned Nashville SC from a solid expansion team to a historic one. Of course, they made some history last year too, but, but here's a little more for you as we get into our gold nuggets. Nashville SC is the first team in the modern MLS era to win a playoff game in the first two years of its existence, Tim. A significant accomplishment that, that again, tells us that, that what Nashville SC is doing is not only impressive, it's unprecedented. Yeah, Seattle Sounders made it to the quarterfinal round of the playoffs in both of their first two years, but uh, it was it started in the quarterfinal round in their expansion year, so I, I did get this tweet wrong immediately after the game. But um, in, in more recent years, a lot of people do gloss over because the, the LAFC team that won the Supporters' Shield with a record-setting point pace and the Atlanta United team won MLS Cup both in their second year. Um, you forget that these teams didn't win a playoff game in their, in their inaugural season, and now that LAFC has failed to make the playoffs in its fourth year, both of them failed to make the playoffs in their fourth year with Atlanta having started a year earlier than LAFC. So what Nashville SC has done is, from a very precise perspective, it is unprecedented, and I think in spirit it's also unprecedented. And I think what we're seeing is Nashville's floor and ceiling or maybe higher than we ever realized they were. And I think another reason to compare Nashville to a Seattle or to a, you know, a Portland with earlier success than Portland, 
rather than Atlanta or LAFC, is that, that we're seeing now that Atlanta and LAFC's success is not as sustainable as perhaps we suspected it would be. And now that I say that, they have the, the payrolls to certainly get back into MLS Cup contention next year. But as for now, LAFC missed the playoffs. Atlanta exited really, really flamed out in that first round in New York City without much of a threat. And I think that's the theme, right, that we see with this mm-hmm. Nashville SC club is the system combined with the player personnel strategy would indicate that this should be a Nashville team that's going to be in this same spot next year and the year after. You know, to not necessarily to win MLS Cup every year because playoffs rely a lot on luck and health and all that, but at least to be in position to compete. Whereas you don't necessarily see that with clubs who are investing a whole lot, then they turn those rosters over mm-hmm. so quickly that it's just not as cohesive of a setup. Yeah, I think the thing that makes Nashville most like Seattle out of those is the floor is always going to be quite high. The ceiling might not quite be as high as a team that has Carlos Vela or has Joseph Martinez, but we've also seen that that both of those clubs have had the floor fall out on them a little bit, and that's not going to happen with Nashville, even if Nashville isn't going to have those those incredible runs that Joseph and, and Carlos have had they're also going to be able to, to not maybe have the struggles that those guys have had as their clubs have, have not been able to support them. And, and obviously with each of them, some injuries over the years. So there's, so there's, you know, exp- explanations for it. Nonetheless, I think Nashville isn't going to have, you know, if Hani Mukhtar were to get hurt, um, God forbid, oh, I don't Lord. think Nashville would, would collapse the same way those clubs did without their stars. Well, Honey Mukhtar certainly was the star, though, on Tuesday night. His second and third playoff goals, he got a PK against Miami last year, and so he passes Daniel Rios, who had two for Nashville, one in USL, one against Toronto last year for the most postseason goals in club history. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, a healthy Daniel Rios could be maybe a game-changer for this Nashville team. Unfortunately, we haven't seen it too much. You know, I just mentioned Honey Mukhtar uh, remaining healthy, and hopefully that remains the case. I think a healthy Hani Mukhtar is a different level of class than anyone that has ever donned Nashville gold in this in this franchise's history, whether that's back to USL. Um, you know, Rios was clearly a, a cut above in USL, but the way Hani is a cut above in MLS might be even more. And I think the fact that he's doing it, obviously, at a higher level of competition says a ton about this guy. Yonder Cadiz, meanwhile, scored his first goal since Montreal, the second match of the season. And you mentioned Daniel Rios being out in his absence how important would Yonder's emergence be in the playoffs to a club that, that could very well find itself in extra time and really needing the reinforcements up top? And, and I'll qualify it. One good play in, <laughs> in, in the last 21 matches is, is a very small sample size. However, we've seen with strikers over and over again, including Yonder, that that one good play can fuel that that belief that he just hasn't really had for most of this season, despite maybe what some of the underlying metrics have told us about some quality that's not being recognized. So back to the question, how vital would it be for him to emerge and become that second striker option, maybe even over an Ake Loba, given some of the qualities he can show late in matches? Well, I would like to push back first that it's not a, a one play sample size. I think Yonder, for whatever reason, fans just choose not to recognize some of the stuff that he does off the ball. Yes, he does have the occasional bad giveaway in the box. He had another one in, in last night, even though there was only limited opportunity to touch the ball. But this is a guy that does a little bit more work than people realize. But that said, yeah, I think you're right in that a guy w- with his overall skill set brings a different level of ceiling to Nashville when you need to take CJ Sapong off, whether that's for rest, whether that's just because of a planned substitution to get more explosiveness onto the field. I think that um, Cadiz has a different type of game. Um, Ake obviously does have some of those characteristics and and probably is a more 
um, natural and clinical finisher than, than Cotty's is, but Cotty's does bring on um, the size, the field stretching things that Nashville is going to want when, when CJ Sapong has to come off the field, you're not going to quite get CJ Sapong, but Cotty's is definitely closer to that style of play than is Loba. Gary Smith is now eight and three in postseason matches in major league soccer. Of course, that includes a run to the 2010 MLS cup. And right after the match, Kelly Glendening on the ESPN 94, nine radio team caught up with Gary on the sideline to talk about the win, what it means to him in this club. Here was Kelly's interview with Gary. Coach, congratulations on the win. What were your overall thoughts on your team's performance tonight? Well, it's, it's ended up being by a greater margin than I ever imagined. Really, really tough game. They had their moments and their spells. It was always going to be a situation where one of these teams might take advantage of it. And it was us tonight. There were some fabulous performances. We put on a great display, we've kept our own form intact and we've done it in front of a magnificent crowd again, so I'm absolutely delighted. And Hani Mukhtar, I mean this season he has just come alive, MVP candidate. What has his development been like and then his performance tonight? I mean, what more can you ask from from your 10? The, second, the, the, the goal that takes us into the lead is unbelievable. You know, there's so much to do when he gets on the ball, but I think it epitomises Harry's performed for us all year, the confident form he's in, just, I mean, he's, he's grown so much this year. You know, when you, when you class leaders in a group, you normally find, you know, maybe the characters, the tougher guys, we, we normally refer to that. But Hanny is a true leader in the sense of the word, in, in the way that he goes about his creative business. He takes the game by the scruff of the neck, he makes things happen, and he's not afraid to put himself out there, and he's, he's been a match winner tonight. Thank you, Coach. Let Go enjoy it. Get yonder. The, the third goal, although it's very, very late on, you know, what we know is there's always that last-minute pressure and craziness. There was very little time left on the clock, but you never know when that ball's slung in the box, you know. So I'm delighted for yonder too. Special thanks to Kelly and, and to ESPN 94.9. And by the way, just a, an editorial note here, as I was you know, sitting up in, the, in a very cold press box, my hands turning blue, Kelly was, of course, going to that next level down on the sidelines, had incredible insight uh, really throughout the match on the ESPN 94.9 radio call and was such an asset. So just a quick shout to Kelly. You'll hear from her a couple more times here with a couple other interviews. But, but back to Gary Smith. Uh, Tim, we, we've talked at length about what makes Gary Smith such an effective manager for this particular club and a fit for this system. What makes him a strong cup manager, in your opinion? I think the fact that his teams are not going to get beat is very important. I and mean, we've had, we've fielded the complaints, we've fielded the uh, mailbag questions, the the somewhat loaded mailbag questions, saying why is this team drawing so much? They should be winning more. I would kind of contend that there's an opportunity that if you don't draw, that you're you're equally likely to win or lose. And I think Nashville has, would be um, very glad to, to never get beat. I think if they had a choice, they would say we would, we would rather never get beat than, than win more frequently, but lose a lot of games. That's something that we'll touch on in the mailbag as well later this episode. And I think the fact that Gary Smith teams are not going to concede goals um, aside this year from set pieces very weirdly, it's, it's become a bugaboo and remains a bugaboo, but um, they're not going to concede easy goals more often than not. And that makes it really difficult to beat them. And, and when you have a talent like Hani Mukhtar, when you have a guy like John Ricottis who can get it done on the other end of the field in, in a key moment, you have the pieces to complement that and, and win games in knockout situations. 
Honey Mukhtar now has 18 goals, regular season and playoffs combined, 12 assists, and we'll discuss in a minute whether he would have cemented an MVP case if voting had not happened yet. But in the meantime, let's hear Kelly's interview with the man of the match. Honey, congratulations on another brace. This was your fifth time this year that you've had multiple goals in a game. Can you just walk us through your performance tonight and, and what kind of ticked for you? Yeah, I mean, we got behind pretty early and uh, I knew that one goal would be not enough. So, yeah, it was a great run from CJ. I know no one will talk about that, but uh, he opened up the space for me and, uh, yeah, I saw it, so I took advantage of that. And what's it been like to play in front of this crowd this year? They were on their feet the whole game, chanting that MVP we can hear it in the background, but what's it been like to play in front of these fans? I mean, it's amazing. Uh, can't wait to play in our own stadium. Um, yeah, but it's amazing, and uh, especially in the cold weather with a lot of fans, it was uh, amazing atmosphere. And this win, it's huge. You guys now play Philadelphia on Sunday. What tone did this set now moving forward in the playoffs about what this team's intentions are? Yeah, I mean, we have to talk about the first minutes of the game and, uh, yeah, to, to make some small changes. And, um, yeah, then we have to bounce back. Awesome. Thanks, Hani. So, Hani, extremely effective, Tim, as we've seen him go from, you know, a, a, a classic number 10, even a wing at times in the first mm-hmm. year, to really a, a second striker and, and you know, a, a leader of the line up top alongside CJ Sapong. And I think last night was the perfect illustration of his skill set and how it is so transformational for this team. Yeah, the fact that he's able to not only make that transformation over the course of his time in Nashville, but make it across various parts of the same game is something that has really helped Nashville. You can slide CJ Sapong out wide and have him feed Hani Mukhtar. You can slide Hani Mukhtar out wide and have him feed CJ Sapong. You can have both of those guys kind of stay centrally and interchange with Randall Layal. You have the opportunity to use them in so many different ways. And obviously, Hani Mukhtar is not, is not a guy who's going to go out and look like an Adam Buxa style, you know, classic number nine, but he's able to get it done because he has a nose for goal which, you know, he's, he's mentioned in, in recent weeks is not really something that he's necessarily done a ton of in his career. He has been that classic number 10 in his time in Europe and now is really showing that, hey, I'm, I'm more than that. And I think the fact that it's it's um, so explosive in terms of creating, but also in terms of finishing is, is really what has taken Nashville to the next level. And, and he, it has made him the most valuable Nashville player. What about Walker Zimmerman? You talk about Hani having a nose for goal. Walker had a head for the ball last night. Again, 10 clearances, six interceptions, a couple of blocks as well. And Kelly caught up with Walker after the match as well on ESPN 94.9. Walker, congratulations on the win. Great defensive performance tonight from the group. What were your overall thoughts on the on the work ethic as a whole? It was really good. A really good game from us. Again, we found ourselves in a hole, but you know, like we've seen time and time again, especially at Nissan Stadium, uh, we were able to get a, a good comeback and turn the game around. We always talk about the playoffs. It takes individual moments from uh, individual players, and uh, our team MVP really stepped up tonight, Hani Mukhtar, with uh, two amazing goals and just a really solid performance from him uh, to give us this win, and really happy for the big man yonder to, to come in and, and seal it off for us. In this environment, I mean, Nissan Stadium was absolutely rocking. What's it been like to play here all year, but then specifically for them to show up in the cold for this game tonight? It's great. I mean, you know, for us, second year in the league, Obviously, this is our temporary home, but they've made it felt like an absolute fortress uh, throughout this entire two-year stretch, and, and particularly this year. So they showed up, and we're happy to, to keep unbeaten record here at home. And you guys have Philadelphia now in a few days, so what are these next four days going to look like as you prepare? Yeah, a lot about recovery, playing five days, uh, and got to travel. So 
you know, it's about getting our bodies right and really just uh, focusing up on the things that we did well when we went there last time, things that we can tweak a little bit, and we'll be ready to battle again. So, Tim, obviously Walker will not get the necessarily get the headlines from this match. In my opinion, though, he's in better form right now than he has been in his two years in Nashville, maybe in his career between club and country. Mm-hmm. What is it that has sparked his growth this season? Is it confidence within the system? Is it an understanding that he's the guy? Is it the confidence that's been placed in him internationally, bleeding over now into what he's doing domestically? In your opinion, what are some of the biggest driving factors of his growth this season? Well, as you and I know, the maturity that comes with fatherhood can really change your outlook <laughs> on life. No. From his, on a serious note, I, I do think it's the fact that he's being trusted in the way that he is not just by Gary Smith, but also by Greg Berhalter for the men's national team. Because if you had told me before the World Cup qualifying cycle began not too long ago, just back in September, if you had told me that this is a guy who's going to regularly captain the U.S. men's national team, I would say, come on, this is a guy who might be lucky to regularly play for the U.S. men's national team. Yeah. But Walker has taken his game to another level, and I do think it's the fact that uh, probably he believes he's playing for his opportunity to make his way to Qatar next November is something that is, it can be a great motivating factor. And I, what, what would you say? Would you say that he's, he's put his best foot forward in that regard? Because I don't think there's a, a counter argument to say, Oh, the way he's playing shows that he's, that he's anything less than a, a world cup player next year. We had that discussion even last week, you know, mm-hmm. we asked, has, has he cemented his, his case to be on the World Cup roster? A lot, of, a lot of soccer to be played between now and then, but we both agreed. Yeah, yeah, he's in. He's not putting his best foot forward, though. He's putting his best <laughs> head forward. His hey, head. Hey, there, were, there, were, there were a number of, of sliding clearances, too. Let's give the man some credit for, uh, for being able to do it with all parts of the ball that can legally clear the clear a, uh, a service into the box from Orlando. And he is sometimes criticized for not being as comfortable on the ball. I will say there were a couple of moves, especially a, a, a takeaway mm-hmm. combined with just a really skillful deke of a defender in the first half that showed he, he can, he can play on the ball. I think he's underrated in, in that respect. Yeah. And watching him with the men's national team, the way that he's grown in that regard just over the past year, you would not say a center back goes to a Gary Smith system and becomes a, a miracle worker on the ball, but it has happened for <laughs> Walker not exactly for whatever Sheffield reason. United, but yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a situation where he's just, and I do think it is that confidence and, and the fact that he realized that he needs to have more to his game than just being an offensive set piece threat. And to a lesser extent, a defensive set piece threat, the, the set piece defense has not been cleared up since his return. That's not obviously not exclusively his fault, nor, primarily his fault but nonetheless he's playing better with his feet he's playing um, a little bit more reserved in terms of his positioning defensively because he was a guy who last year was a huge risk taker and you're going to get a risk reward proposition every time and and Dave Romney was going to maybe be there to clean up some of the mistakes you're seeing some of the same risks or some of the same rewards sorry without any of those risks really this year Mm -hmm. because he's able to kind of figure out when and where to use his athleticism and of course the, the technical improvement is something that's incredible because when you talk to U.S. Men's National Team fans, it's it's pretty much Walker Zimmerman plays in MLS. He's he's not going to be very good on the ball, and there's there's a grain of truth to that. But but if you ask them now, they're like, oh yeah, Walker's one of our better def- uh, defenders on the ball. He's not going to be John Brooks, but I'm like, well, this is a guy that, that that's completely the opposite of the book on him until this past year. And yeah. but it's it's fair. He has changed the narrative. And the ability to take the risks and get the reward without some of the downside, I think, is also a, a mm-hmm. huge testament to the three-man back line that, that Gary has employed, where Walker has some of the freedom to step forward. You can't do that, though, unless Alistair has made himself into a strong right center back and not just a guy who's going to play on the flanks. 
Uh, you can't do it without Jack Mayer developing the confidence to step mm-hmm. back and hold his own. And he had a couple of brilliant plays, including one or two against Daryl DK, a man who got the better of him in Nashville last time. So, you know, I think it, it all works together, but the system has equipped Walker to do what he needs to do to develop. And Walker's development in turn, of course, has helped the system and it's created a virtuous cycle for this team. And they're going to need every ounce of that defensive solidity against a Philadelphia team that beat them the last time these teams met on the banks of the Delaware River. That's where they'll be playing again. And here is what Philly did in the 123rd minute against New York Red Bulls in the first round. Third out, Glestis fires! Glestis goal! That highlight courtesy of PHL 17 and one JP Della Camera, who was also on the call for Nashville SC last night on Fox. This Philadelphia team is a bruising team. They are New York Red Bulls 2.0 in a lot of ways in the way they play. Not completely similar, but but there are some some comparisons you can draw. And they beat Red Bulls via a 123rd-minute goal from Jacob Glesnes. You know he can strike from distance. Nobody expected that to happen, though. It looked like it was headed to PKs. And now Nashville goes to Philadelphia, a team it really, I'm sure, wishes it could be hosting and would be hosting if not for giving up a couple of late goals in a couple situations earlier this year. Um, Each team did win at home. Nashville won on an early C.J. Sapong tally uh, back on July 4th weekend. It was the earliest goal in club history. Philly on a penalty from Casper Shabilko up in Philadelphia. Teams didn't play last year. They just played the two times, of course, splitting those results. But this is a Philly team that won the Supporter Shield last season before losing in round one to the eight-seeded New England team that ended up going all the way to the conference final. Tim, this Philly team was expected by many to take a step back this year after they lose Brendan Aronson, they lose Mark McKenzie, but at this point in the season, they look just about as threatening as ever. Yeah, and that's a credit to, to Jim Curtin. Obviously, uh, I believe he was last year's MLS coach of the year. I don't recall, recall actually if he had won it or not, but he's a guy who has always been able to get the most out of his team when it counts the most, and, and every coach cannot necessarily say that. And obviously... Philly's still looking for that MLS cup. So you can't say he's done a perfect job, but he's able to, to put, you know, set up his team to succeed. And, and on the given day, it's, in, in a way, it's a lot like Gary Smith on a given day. If they don't win, it's not necessarily because there was anything that was lacking there. It's just, it's just a matter of the other, the other team's kids are on scholarship too, as I always say, and, and a reference that only I get, <laughs> but, but I, I do think Philly's rounding into form at just the right time. I, I, I'm with you there. I, as a, again, a college sports nut, uh, any college football analogy you want to bring. I, I got you. I got you back. <laughs> uh, you would not have a few years ago drawn Philadelphia as a model for MLS expansion teams. They were just miserable mm-hmm. for several years after their creation. They stuck with Jim Curtin, though. They've kept building. And now Mike Jacobs, in, in a great piece with uh, with Tom Bogert here recently uh, of MLSsoccer.com, said that, that Nashville in many ways is modeled after a team like Philly. And he also mentioned SKC in that regard and, and Seattle, you know, development clubs, if you will, that don't necessarily have the highest payrolls in the league, but are always going to be contending year after year. They're going to be in the conversation for the playoffs and potentially for MLS cup at this stage in Philly's existence, not it's, it's formative years. Um, and at this stage in Nashville's existence, what similarities do you see between these two clubs? I think they both want to build without, kind of saying, you know, like I mentioned earlier, they don't want to say, let's go sign Joseph Martinez and that's our team. They want to have a cohesive and, and fully kind of fleshed out principle of how they want to play, principle of how they want to build. And that's going to include 
um, using all of the kind of mechanisms that MLS provides to, to have your roster built out as, as solidly as possible. I don't think a ton of teams are, are going to have as many homegrowns as Philly does, but Nashville makes up for that by buying all of Philly's MLS draft spots and, and drafting guys because they don't have that opportunity. Some of these things where you're, you're taking advantage of what's available to you instead of saying, okay, now let's go drop 15 million on a, on a European transfer and, and that call it a day. We'll go on vacation at that point. So I think that, that the kind of solid base Base is, a, is a big similarity. You ready for a, a smooth segue? Let's do it. Speaking of smart DP money, <laughs> Nashville's designated player is showing out right now, Hani Mukhtar. After last night's performance, would a revote see Hani Mukhtar get enough votes to win league MVP? That is our embrace consensus question. Tim, what do you think? I think would it? Probably not. Should it? I mean, I already voted for him in media voting for, for MVP in the first place. And that wasn't out of any Homer feeling, but because I believe that Hani Mukhtar was the league's MVP this year. Um, we've hashed and rehashed the arguments for both Mukhtar and New England's Carlos Hill. And, and frankly, I think if people had their minds made up about Hill, nothing was really going to change them as uh, you know the season demonstrated a little mm-hmm. bit. It's worth noting that Hill hasn't hit the playoff turf. And, and yes, uh, it is turf up there in New England. He hasn't hit the playoff turf yet. So if he has a goal and an assist against NYCFC, this weekend is it suddenly okay now maybe he was the rightful mvp uh, ultimately ultimately there's no real use in in uh, relitigating it time and time again with each performance from these guys but uh, maybe i shouldn't have come up with this as an embrace consensus topic but i do think that it showed last night hani's ability to to step up in the biggest moments and that's what you want an mvp to do and and for that reason i think he certainly might have swayed a couple people and i, I just don't think it would have been enough to to probably uh, unless we are on the verge of witnessing an upset here uh, win the MVP. Well, I'm glad that you came up with this Embrace Consensus question, and uh, we are not sitting here relitigating who should have won MVP, but I think it is an interesting question and commentary on the nature of MLS media, and uh, I actually think last night's performance would have swung potentially enough people to make him the MVP. Now, it takes a Herculean effort to overcome MLS media confirmation bias. I also believe that if Hani Mukhtar had had Carlos Heel's numbers earlier in the season, and then Carlos Heel came on late, that confirmation bias would probably have worked in favor of, of Mukhtar. Probably. Hard to say, given the, the team's respective performances this year. What would Mukhtar need to do then to overcome some of the basic inherent flaws in MLS large-scale media analysis? Number one, he would need to capitalize on another bias they have. We mentioned confirmation bias, but how about recency bias? Um, he has five goals in his last five matches. Heel in his last 11 contests now has just two goals and three assists. So they, you know, they could eventually overcome that confirmation bias that's built in in the early months of the season with recency bias of somebody who's standing out late in the year. You need an MVP moment. We talk in college football again about that Heisman moment. I think the Heismans are an incredibly flawed system. I, I, I have so many issues with it. But it is often built on on special moments. Uh, Hani's had two of them in the last two matches. The free kick against Red Bulls is, is 1B. It was so impressive, but it was also on decision day with a million things happening. So if you look back, it's incredibly impressive. But that second goal on Tuesday night against Orlando, when the whole MLS nation is watching that match, I think is is an MVP-style moment that, that I think would have won some people over. 
And in the national spotlight, you need to perform. Nashville hasn't had the national limelight as much as New England this year. The brace in the playoffs for Nashville SC, I think, is is an MVP-worthy performance as well. So I think, actually, enough people might have been persuaded by that. It would have been awfully close, but I do think Carlos Heel is going to be the eventual MVP. And, you know, honestly, again, we talked a couple weeks ago, and, and I cast my vote, unofficial vote, that direction as well uh, because of, of his meaning to New England, a lot of underlying metrics there. Uh, but I think Hani made a powerful case last night the out of sight out of mind principle for heel if the voting were today it would really pay <laughs> off in honey's favor people haven't seen carlos heel play in a little while um through no fault of his own that's in fact it is through fault of his own because he helped his team earn the number one seed in the in the eastern conference but yeah i, th- I think if there were a vote today because honey played last night because he had the game that he did uh, yeah today the vote might be your right all right, so let's go outside in. Let's look elsewhere in the East and out West at the playoffs. And uh, the other conference semifinal matchup is between New England, of course, the record-setting top team in the East, and NYCFC in New England coming off that, that first round bye that they get as the courtesy since they won the Eastern Conference. NYCFC beat Atlanta United 2-0. That one being played, of course, in Foxborough on that vaunted turf. Tim, who you got? Yeah, I think it's it's probably going to end up being New England. I would I would very much like to see New York City FC for obvious reasons because it means if Nashville were to upset Philadelphia, there would be another game at Nissan Stadium this year. But I do think what New England provides, especially when they have the rest that they do, gives them the opportunity to go out and kind of they can play loose and still win because they have Matt Turner and playing loose sees them score you know three four five goals if they really play loose, which they don't that much this year. Bruce Arena has not focused on blowing people mm-hmm. out, but. Mm-hmm. When there's no stakes, really, in that in that regard, once you have a two-goal lead, why not go for it? And I think in the playoffs, I think playoff Bruce might have a little, like, evil, evil goatee, like, you know, evil Bruce Arena shows up. I like NYCFC here. I think a team that has had the best underlying metrics in MLS, and in some cases historically strong underlying mm-hmm. metrics, will, will finally find an opportunity to unleash that quality, which has been tainted by some of their flaws this year and some inconsistency. Um, I think, too, the the benefit, as, as my son is weighing in in the next room, I think he really hates this pick, um, the, the benefit of having played a match and, and gotten their, their playoff legs under them versus a New England team that really hasn't played a competitive match in, in a month. I mean, they their last match was against Inter-Miami. They lost it. You know they're going to win that game if they really are putting themselves into it. So... I think a New England team that doesn't have its its playoff footing will concede early to NYCFC. I think it's a back-and-forth, pretty wild game, and I think New York City gets the win. Although I don't say that with much confidence, I, I think it is absolutely possible. And I think it's, it is worth noting if they do get the win, this New York City team is, plays really well with the ball, and that makes it difficult for New England to do some of the things that they do best, which is get their players into huge gaps in space and, and let Carlos Hill cook and let Tejan Buchanan cook on the wing. They're not going to have that opportunity if they go down early either. Thank you for arguing my case better than I did. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Oh, by the way, that match takes place uh, next Tuesday. Philadelphia and Nashville kicking off at 4.30 local time, Nashville time, up in Chester. The winner of that match will take on the winner of New England and NYC. As you mentioned, if Nashville SC wins and New England wins, they would visit Foxborough. If Nashville wins and NYC wins, we're back to Nissan Stadium. New England hosts whoever the winner is, and, and NYC visits whoever the winner is. Stop saying things better than I'm <laughs> saying them. I'm the broadcaster here. Jeez. Uh, let's head out west now. Colorado taking on Portland, which had no real trouble with Minnesota. A 3-1 win. They went down in the 11th minute, but they came back with a plum. And now they'll visit a Colorado team that that has surprised a lot of people this year. 
by finishing atop the West. They're arrested. That one taking place in Denver. Really intrigued by this one. I think there's going to be a lot of sentiment swaying toward Portland just because, again, of that confirmation bias of mm-hmm. Portland good, Colorado mediocre. That's not the story this year. I like Colorado in a tight match here. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think if Colorado had a different name, it might be a team that people were a lot more jazzed about. It would be a team that you'd look and say, look, these guys won the Western Conference, a pretty competitive Western Conference. But because it's the Colorado Rapids, because they have their recent history of not spending and current history of not spending as well, um, that people are kind of down on them. Portland, you know, you mentioned NYC's incredible advanced stats over the course of the year. Portland has had pretty poor advanced stats. Now, obviously, it hasn't caught up with the Timbers yet. Maybe it won't in the playoffs. We saw Columbus crew just kind of go on a run through the playoffs last year, despite mediocre advanced stats. But I think anybody listening uh, has heard me talk myself into, into this point by now. But I do think sooner or later it catches up to you. It's In making a prediction, it's more likely than not that the advanced stats do kind of finally hit and ring true. And I think Colorado, especially at home, I know obviously both of these teams um, have a, a pretty significant home field advantage because of some of the intricacies of, of Portland's turf and obviously uh, Rapids uh, altitude. So I do think that's going to help the uh, Rapids do what they need to do and, and get enough maybe just a one nothing win over the Timbers. My prediction of Vancouver over Sporting KC was grossly incorrect as <laughs> SKC uh, beat Vancouver 3-1 to advance the two-seed host Real Salt Lake. I think if you're naming the three moments of the playoffs so far, it's Glesnes' goal in the 123rd against Red Bulls, it's Hani's MVP moment <laughs> against <laughs> Orlando City, and it's RSL going to penalties and winning over Seattle despite not taking a shot. And I'm not talking about shots on target. They didn't take a single shot all night. The first time they hurled a sphere in the direction of goal was in PKs. They win in sudden death PKs in the sixth frame. RSL goes to SKC. Seattle, who'd been to MLS Cup for the last five years, is out. I, I believe the Seattle over Toronto FC MLS Cup championship was no shots on target. They did have shots, just no right. shots on target. So this Correct. is an incredible stat here. But yeah, I mean, RSL knows what to do. Um, they know it's not going to be pretty. They know they don't have the pieces to win a pretty game against a team like Seattle and went out and did it. I don't think they can do it <laughs> two matches in a row. I do think Sporting KC has a pretty easy job in beating Real Salt Lake and, and moving along to face Colorado. We are entering a world in which we can start to imagine the prospects of a Gary Smith Cup between Nashville and Colorado or a Mike <laughs> Jacobs Cup between Nashville and SKC, the latter of which would be particularly intriguing since Mike, of course, played such a key role in building SKC in the last few years. A lot of soccer to be played, but uh, I'm with you. I think Colorado and SKC meet up in the Western Conference Final. I think RSL has had a miraculous run under an interim coach and Pablo Mastroeni. I think it ends in Kansas City, and I think it ends relatively decisively, although it's a fool's errand necessarily to count out RSL after what they did against Seattle. I just don't think you can take such few shots again and, and have a shot yeah. at, at winning. What what RSL did is is kind of what the the pejorative of Gary Ball is. Obviously, you know, you and I have pushed back on oh no offense, all defense, but <laughs> you can only go so far with with literally no offense before sooner or later, even just a single magic moment from you know, for example, Daniel Shallowy, a guy who's going to be uh, one of those MVP contenders along with Hani and Carlos Heel. Sooner or later, a guy like that is going to have the magic moment. Now, obviously, Seattle didn't have it, but I think you can, you're, you're living uh, dangerously to, to, to rely on that multiple games in a row. 
All right, listeners, your turn. Let's take it to the mailbag. John Cade, who was stuck in traffic until right before kickoff last night, was able to make it in miraculously just uh, just before the referee blew the whistle. He asks, can we quantify how many times DK falls compared to other players? Real question, he says. It's just crazy to me that our guys typically get right back up. Yonder could have fallen on that last challenge. He kept going and scored. Orlando would never. Yeah, I think Orlando has a pretty heavy Argentine slash Brazilian as well as uh, Iberian influence to its team. Uh, it feels pretty divetastic when you watch them play. Um, I was pretty disappointed to see DK partaking as well, including as a USMNT fan, because I think you're not going to get a lot of those calls in CONCACAF. Um, fairly or not, a guy who's as big as DK is, who who has the, the breadth of body that DK has, is not going to get a ton of calls. And when he starts to get a reputation as a diver for going down pretty easily early in the match, uh, you know, you're, you're going to get kind of that boy who cried wolf uh, situation. And Ismail Althoff didn't fall for it. And, and a late challenge that might have, in some circumstances, been called a penalty against Walker Zimmerman and would have given DK an opportunity to equalize. But, you know, you, you cry wolf so many times, eventually the officials are, are no longer going to kind of heed that, that call. And I believe that that's what you're starting to see with a guy like DK, who hopefully I, I don't think it's it's necessarily something that's like baked into his game. He was no. not like that in college. He was not really like that last year. So we'll see. Agree with you. I'll allow for a slippery field for some of those falls. We saw CJ slip a few times. We know he's a genuine player who's not going to go down easy. Um, but I actually shared that observation last night. I thought uh, I thought DK went down a little bit softly a few times. I thought he, he did once or twice in previous matches against Nashville as well. I hope he shakes off some of those influences around him and, and channels his uh, his inner championship, his inner English championship <laughs> in Barnsley. Robbie Aces says, well, NSC emphatically answered my mailbag question last night. I credit you and Tim for the perfect analysis in advance of it. Yeah, th- uh, you're welcome, Robbie. No, but the, the question was about whether Nashville could survive going down early. And uh, I think you and I both said that they kind of have the pieces in place to be able to, to push back. And a Nashville team playing at home has a very different ability to come back than a Nashville SC team maybe playing in Orlando or playing basically anywhere else. Nissan Stadium has truly been a fortress for this team. We've seen it. They have not lost in Music City all year. And I, I do believe that uh, I think what we predicted last week or what we kind of said in response to, to Robbie's question was was borne out on the field against Orlando City. And it's nice, it's nice to have uh, events play out in such a way that make us feel smart. And, and and to Robbie for recognizing that we have the opportunity to feel smart and giving us the layup to, to take a victory lap here. We are brilliant in our own minds and occasionally <laughs> can appear semi-competent outside of them as well. Thank you. Uh, John Mueller asks which matchup is most critical against the Union. He says, to me, whoever wins the midfield wins the game, but NSC attackers versus Andre Blake could be compelling viewing as well. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, for me, it's the fullbacks and wingers and, and the interchanges between those guys against Philly's wide areas. The Union has messed around for the past couple of years with a few formations, most notably a 4-4-2 diamond, which is a pretty narrow formation, which can leave a team exposed on the flanks. The problem for Nashville is that their danger from wide areas in the run of play has kind of dried up over the course of this season. Um, albeit some of that is just because Hani and CJ are doing so much in the middle of the park that it doesn't need to come from wide. But if Dan Lovitz and, and Alistair Johnston or or the Miller uh, replacement for Alistair Johnston out wide, and if those guys can combine with Randall Layall, can combine with Hani Mukhtar and give those wide spaces, I do think it prevents Philly from getting as far forward with their fullbacks as they like to do to kind of cover for that that lack of width in the midfield. It makes life difficult for what they want to do, and it makes Nashville have the opportunity to say, okay, we're going to dictate the game even in your own park. 
I think that's all tremendous analysis. I'll cover midfield in the matchup there and shed a little light on what's happening there since John's interested in that that area of the pitch. Uh, Philly ranks second in Major League Soccer in tackles per game. You might not be surprised to note that New York Red Bulls is first, both of them fairly active and pressing uh, both in the opposing third and in the middle of the field. Uh, Philly ranks ninth in interceptions and eighth in time spent in the opposing third. So that speaks to their aggression. Uh, and uh, certainly the middle of the pitch is a place then where you can have a pressure valve uh, a little bit, uh, then the wings really turn into that, right? You, mm-hmm. you send the ball into the middle of the pitch, into the mixer, and what you need to be able to do then is to spring quickly outside to avoid Philly's pressure in the middle. They love playing a hard-nosed, you know, number eight there, number six there. Um, you know, Jose Martinez comes to mind as a guy who's going to step up and make your life really difficult. Uh, note that Philly averages just under 48% possession per match. So they are comfortable lying in wait in midfield, dispossessing you and springing forward. That may sound familiar. That is often Nashville's blueprint, of course, as well. Um, some things that Nashville did well in its 1-0 win at home over Philly. Uh, Nashville had its highest pa- pass accuracy of the season on passes between 5 and 15 yards. So they were able to work the ball quickly in midfield and then out to the wings didn't rely on the long ball, which is something you often see against teams that want to press you. You just send it route one, you work on getting those second balls, and you try to create something. It was all of Philly and Red Bulls, as we predicted it would be, 423 minutes. Um, conversely, though, Nashville only has won once this year in the nine matches in which it attempted its highest number of long passes. So when it does launch the ball downfield and rely on the second balls, it is not typically enjoyed success because it's not built a lot of cohesion in the attack. So the key, I think in my opinion is to win those 50 fifties in midfield. You do have to win those battles, John, I think you're Mm -hmm. spot on there, but then to resist the temptation to launch the long balls and just try to be speculative there and, and get the second balls instead, try to break out with those tight passes in midfield, springing players down the wing. And then when we talk wings, then we go back Tim, to what you just said and, and visit some of the matchup advantages Nashville could potentially have out there. Yeah. And I, 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 do think the wide areas are so important but you know as as we've seen even in the in the game that Nashville won against Philly it's not being in wide areas that gets you gets you goals it's getting it from wide areas to a guy like CJ Sapong who obviously had the incredible goal right at the beginning of that game I think the combination of all of that is something that's going to be so important obviously you need to play a very good game to beat the number two team in the Eastern Conference and Nashville's going to have to do that Josh asking a question a lot of people have wondered What's up with Dave Romney? And Gary Smith addressed that post-game. Romney missing his second straight match after playing every minute in the club's first 59 matches of his history. As far as Dave's concerned, he was touch and go for tonight. I'd loved him to have been available. He'd just not quite done enough work. I think he'll be available for us for Sunday. Yeah, so so Josh, C-O-Y-I, uh, come on you irons. Yes, that's correct. You had uh, to work to, in the West Ham engine. I was yeah. trying to avoid it. But but to answer the question, yeah, he's had a lingering calf injury that's not too significant, but it was giving him discomfort towards the end of the regular season. So he sat out the decision day matchup to try and get it right. But he wasn't 100% after the international break, so it took a little bit of time to integrate him into training a little bit. It made more sense to continue to let him rest in rehab rather than try to force his way into the lineup without getting those practice reps. Um, He was healthy but not game-repped for the game on Tuesday evening. And, And as Gary Smith said in that quote, he'll be available Sunday. Josh Collins asks a question that springs from a comment Gary Smith made last night that in any other league around the world, Nashville would have finished second and not third because goal differentials used as the primary tiebreaker ahead of total wins in major league soccer. It is total wins. And I think maybe there was a bit of either taking out of context or maybe, you know, 
overhyping that one quote from Gary Smith after the match. Uh, but he said it, so I guess it's fair game. What do you think? Is total wins a better tiebreaker than goal differential? And do we know why the league made that choice? All right. The fact that we are answering this mailbag question makes me believe that I that I have never yet in this space gone on my rant about it. You you gave about a two sentence excerpt one time, but okay. you've not gone yeah. on the full. So go for it. Wins as a tiebreaker is bad. It is worse. It does not reflect who the better team actually is between two teams that are tied on points. Uh, you know, using wins as a tiebreaker actually rewards the worst team. Um, if you look at a win as half or a draw as half of a win as as it is in any practical perspective, Nashville SC's win percentage was 618, while Phillies was 588. Across a three-game stretch, 0, 0, and 3, that's three draws, no wins, no losses, is a 500 record. Do we agree on this, Wes? Yes. If you go one, two, and zero, that's one win and two losses. That is a 33% record. Do we agree on this, Wes? Yeah. The, but the I, team I, that has the one on win has the same number of points, has the same number of points and the tiebreaker, despite being objectively a worse team in that, in that, over that three game stretch. So Nashville had two such three game stretches where they were getting three draws and Philly was getting a, a win and two losses. And yet that's somehow seen as a negative on Nashville. And of course, Obviously, you know, from a Nashville perspective, it makes sense because as we've covered in the past, this team is going to draw a lot of games and they aren't going to lose a lot of games. But goal differential, if you use that, first of all, goal differential more accurately represents who the better teams are because it's a more um, robust data set than just wins, losses, draws. There are, there are only three options there. You can obviously score theoretically an infinite number of points in a given game. And, and that's as a proxy for how good teams actually are is a little bit more accurate than even what the final table says and the wins losses draws. The difference between a win and a, and a draw is, is two points. And that's already reflected in the table. It doesn't also need to be a tiebreaker because we've already had, okay, a win is more valuable than a draw in this way. It is not worth, even though it's worth half as many win or half again, as much uh, win, I guess you could say it is worth three times as many points. So you've already rewarded teams for winning rather than drawing games. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. Second part, second part of his question. I had to decompress for a second there. I do understand <laughs> the reasoning. The reason, the reason MLS does this is because they want to encourage teams to go for wins and not be afraid of losses rather than settling for draws. It makes for a more exciting TV product. It does not make for a table that reflects accurately who the better teams are. And at some point you have to make the decision between substance and style and MLS has chosen style in this regard and wanting teams to push for three points. I understand it as well. I also agree with you. I think that in a league where we have a lot of media and a lot of fans who have not been involved with the league for more than five years, when John Strong referenced that and his approach mm -hmm. on his broadcasts last week in our bonus episode, there's a lot of orthodoxy that results. There are five, six, seven voices that people listen to and then just systematically accept their reasoning. It has become part of MLS orthodoxy that this tiebreaker setup is good, that encouraging teams to push for wins in a league driven by parity is a positive. I agree with you, Tim. I, I believe in reflecting actual quality, and I believe that draws are not bad. Draws are strategic. Draws can be positive. I understand the TV argument. I would argue at this point, it's a compelling TV product for a lot of other reasons, and that teams aren't necessarily looking at the uh, the tiebreaker incentives and in making their tactical decisions game by game. They're pushing for wins when they can push for wins. Uh, so I, I would I would love to see that changed, not necessarily because it would have benefited Nashville this year, but as you've said, because number one, it brings MLS in line with the rest of the world, mm -hmm. uh, and number two, it is a better reflection of the quality of a given team.
Yeah. And, and I, I will agree with you on, on a point that kind of runs counter to what we say. I, I, I appreciate the fact that MLS is, is making decisions in search of the best possible TV product. I just don't think it's necessary in terms of upsetting what should be a competitive decision in, in favor of something. Like Final whistle, content recommendations. Uh, I think there, there's been a lot of strong journalism about Nashville SC in the past few days. And you would expect some of that, right? The The field is narrowing in terms of teams that are still alive, which means more attention on each of those individual teams. Tom Bogert put together a strong piece on MLSsoccer.com this week talking about Nashville's approach and sitting down with Mike Jacobs, going back through the history of this club and tracing its approach to to this week and to where things stand for Nashville SC. Um, Drake Hills, who we've not given enough love to, I think, on, on this podcast, he had a great piece in the Tennessean that did something similar. I talked to him last night about it. He said, basically, it was a, it was a, a, a compilation of a lot of individual interviews and features that I've done. And I put them together into this this you know more overarching narrative about what those things mean to where the club stands now and how it is built to this moment. But of course, first and foremost, my number one content recommendation is going to be go to Club and Country, where Tim is bringing the uh, as usual the perfect blend of quote unquote narrative and data behind it. And you're not going to find a a better place if you want your opinions supported by actual facts by numbers <laughs> and uh, and and sometimes that will change your opinions and we've done that on this show before as well uh tim has great coverage so uh clubcountryusa.com keep listening to the podcast keep reading there and those two will work in in tandem to give you everything you need to know before each nashville SC match yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself, Wes. I really appreciate that. Um, on a serious note, my content recommendation is going to be, it's kind of going to be a, a coming together of two things that I've recommended in the past, which are the athletic and American soccer analysis. Um, John Muller, who formerly wrote for American soccer analysis, was recently hired by the athletic UK. I think most listeners to this podcast know that I don't pay a ton of attention to European soccer, but the quality of John's analysis is going to be so impressive covering the Premier League, covering on continental European leagues. I'm really excited to see what he's able to produce with the resources that the athletic is going to be able to provide. And as Wes just mentioned, I'm a, I'm a nerd for the stat stuff and bringing it together and, and marrying it with narrative is, is something that um, I've, I've recommended John's space, space, space letter before. Um, may it may it rest in peace. But um, the way that John is able to weave a story with the, the data side of it and make it still a compelling read is something that frankly I aspire to and that's I'm going to be really excited to see what he's able to produce with the athletic I think you've succeeded in that quest as well and, and it is interesting uh, so when I think of your website Tim I think of um, the rocking chair in my baby's room uh, <laughs> because so many long nights of him not sleeping well as a you know an infant and now into his first year he's not been a great sleeper he's a great kid but <laughs> not a great sleeper it, your, your site is one of my defaults when I'm there um because you know it's it's compelling stuff even in a moment where i might be sleepy it's going to keep me awake it's going to keep me going i think you you have brought a lot of what american soccer analysis has gathered into your uh analysis and, and into conclusions you've drawn so uh would certainly uh, say you're putting where your content where your mouth is there and not just <laughs> reading that content but incorporating it into so much of what you do and, and i i appreciate that uh, any final thoughts before nashville and philadelphia take the field on sunday 
Yeah, the one thing is I've already seen a number of fans from the Nashville SC fan base making their arrangements to make their way to Philadelphia this Sunday for the game, which is going to be a pretty exciting trip for a lot of those people. My pro tip, if you have not made arrangements but are interested, is flying to Newark, New Jersey or Baltimore, Maryland. They are both less than an hour and a half away from Chester, Pennsylvania, and they are going to be a much cheaper flight from Nashville. <laughs> than that American direct, I guess, to Philly. Yeah. That's, that's a good note. Uh, hope many of you are able to make it there. You can catch the match on ESPN 94.9. Pre-game will start 15 minutes before uh, before the telecast. And uh, thank you guys for... Uh, for listening and for being a part of this show. We're glad to get to preview another match today. Thanks to ESPN 94.9 for so much content today uh, that we're able to bring you. Thanks to Moon Taxi for the music. Give us a, a rating on, on Apple Podcasts. Give us a review there. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And now as the soccer audience is growing, it's expanding in that typical playoff pattern that you see. Because of that, because of that, because that TV product that we just talked about. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, tell your friends. Tell your friends about this show. If if you you know you want to recommend an entry level product, we're not entry level for for everybody. We go deep, but we can also be entry level and give the basics. In, in addition to going deeper, I think it's a great combo. Um, tell your friends and and give us a follow on Twitter as well. If you don't, if you're listening this far into the show, you probably already do. But tell your friends to follow us too. And thanks to the 440 Sports Network for keeping us on the air every week. A lot more good content to come, a lot more good soccer to come, at least 90 more minutes. We'll be here to talk about it next week. Until then, so long.